Hello, and welcome to the Recovery Matters podcast from CCAR, the podcast where putting recovery first is always the goal. Here we present interviews, discussions, stories, and speeches to cultivate the understanding and acceptance of the power, hope, and healing of recovery from alcohol and other addictions. Here are your hosts, Phil and Sandy Valentine. I'm pretty thrilled always to do the podcast, and um, we have somebody we haven't met before, Mm -hmm. and I think I like that up too. It's just different because we get to really find out about somebody for the first time. Well, one of the things I was sharing recently with folks that I love the most about connecting with somebody in recovery is within the first half hour, like, we know each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we know each other. Uh-huh. But I can't wait to learn more about you, Rex. So welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, I uh, typically I go and investigate the people that, whose podcast I'm going to be on. <laughs> oh, but, don't do that. Well, <laughs> no. so, I mean, just like listen to some of the episodes and mm-hmm. stuff. And uh, and I did it for this one. Mm-hmm. I like I because it's like I uh well I'll get more to the reason why but like today's a special day for me so like I just wanted it to be a completely organic conversation and like so that's cool that you guys don't know nothing about me I don't really know anything about you so well we know a little bit about you your full name is Rex Shades Eagle yes sir oh, what a cool name um it's not the name I was born with the name mm-hmm. I was born with I was born a junior to a man who's a pedophile and a rapist and um, at this time in my discovery, like um, in adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, we call it recovery and discovery mm-hmm. because recovery implies that you're getting to a place back to a place that you once were or at least a semblance of a place you once were. Um, Can I make yeah, my, let me make yeah, my first go observation that go ahead. Yeah, that, go ahead. that you said that first like bombshell of a sentence um, there was still a little heat there, which I would imagine there would be, but I was born a junior to a rapist and a pedophile. And then yeah. you just kind of went right on. And like, to me, that's just almost, wow. So I didn't meet, <clears throat> I didn't, so when, I, okay, so I was born to my mom and my dad. Um, he was 17, she was 16. Wow. Um, my paternal grandfather literally uh, went to my dad's house with a 45 and was like, you're going to do right by my daughter or I'm going to put you in a hole somewhere and they'll never find you. And to me, I thought that was strange, right? That like mm-hmm. my dad's family would allow that to happen. You know what I mean? And again, it, you know, it, was, it was 1973. It was a whole completely different world back then. <clears throat> but to me, that's still wrong, strange, right? And I'm like, why would my father allow that to happen? You know what I'm saying? But he did. He married um, Tom Sr., married Sharon, my mother, and... He joined the Marine Corps. So they moved down to Paris Island. She was living in some trailer park for the families, and he was on base. And apparently every time he came home off base, uh, he just got fucked up and beat us up. Like, I was a newborn. I was, you know, the first few months of my life. And apparently the sheriffs had to be called several times. And the second to last time when I was uh, about four months old, the sheriff told Sharon, he said, if I have to come out here again, I'm taking the kid. He had to come out again. And she was like, let me call my parents. Let me see if they'll come get him. She called uh, Ed and Cass. Those are my maternal grandparents. And said, you got 
24 hours to come get them. They were in New Jersey. That's where I, that's where I was born, New Jersey. So they were like, all right, we're on our way. Dropped everything. Uh, Ed called into work. So did Cass. They drove down to South Carolina, picked me up. They gave Sharon the, op- the option. You can come too. And she said no. Because Cass was her stepmom. Cass was just a disciplinarian. Mm-hmm. She didn't take shit. And Sharon <laughs> wanted to go out and be a little cokehead, little drunk. You know what I mean? Like, and Sharon was the kind of the black sheep that they go to get me. They offer her, they're like, hey, you can come back, back with us. And she was like, no, I'd rather just stay here and take my chances. That to me is fucked up. Here's another thing I found out. The day <laughs> I was born, the day I was born, they took me away from my mother for a month because apparently my asshole was too small and they had to take me across the river to Philadelphia to have it stretched for a month. So like I'm really, really since I've gotten clean this time. Uh, have you ever heard of that before? No, I, I mean I've definitely heard of newborns with GI problems, yeah. but not that so, one, dude. So the first month of the first month of my life, I was separated from the one person oh, yeah. most important. I I've, I've attributed my clean and sober today to the work I've done on my trauma, and I've learned a lot about trauma and how wow. deep and how early it can happen. Mm-hmm. Like, trauma can happen in the womb, like it's mm-hmm. it's insane. But uh, I so, um, I agree. But, like at one point in my life, I did a whole bunch of studying about newborns and those first weeks and the need for bonding and connection with their mother. Um, so absolutely. Sometimes the hands were given. The, the one the cards you have to play are, are incomprehensible for other people and and the cards you have to play with were like not too good were they uh I mean it depends on how you look at it uh, wonderful answer because for 27 years I got high at my life mm-hmm. and then I got clean and sober and I was not capable of being honest with myself. So I had to go do some more research mm-hmm. and, uh, and it ended in a pretty bad way, but then here I am today, but, uh, mm-hmm. back to my dad, when I was, when I was 17, I was in a motorcycle accident. I don't remember it. I was a passenger on a crotch rocket, a uh, drunk driver ran a red light. We T-boned him. I woke up 73 days later, um, in traction with 27 broken bones, including a compound fracture on my shin, three neck fractures, three spinal fractures. I was in a halo brace. I woke up to looking at myself in a mirror in traction. Um, and so I, I, I spent a lot of time obviously reflecting on my short life. And um, I, I decided I wanted to get to know my father, my namesake. And uh, so I have got out the phone book when I was able and I started going through all the tolls. He was living in Las Vegas. We talked on the phone a few times and I had a bunch of money from the motorcycle settlement. And I decided I was going to go to Vegas and meet my pops because I'm excited at this point. I'm like, man, man, I'm going to get to meet my dad. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. I get it. He had his struggle. She had her struggle. We're all good. I just want to meet my dad. Right. Back up real quick. My maternal grandparents ended up adopting me when I'm six years old. I sitting in a courtroom with my dad, who I thought was my dad all day. Bonnie, the judge at the end of the day, we left for lunch, came back. He's like, well, Mr. Walter, it looks like he's not coming. The court will award you, uh, Award the adoption adoption finalized. He's yours. Blah blah blah. God bless. Good luck. And I'm like, I knew the word adoption, right? It was something that some of the kids in my class got made fun of for. Mm-hmm. So we're in the we're in the drive home, and uh, 
he tells me that the whole story, part of the story, he doesn't tell me the whole story. He just told me that they had to go get me and that my real father was a piece of shit. My real mother wasn't any better, blah, 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 blah. Two weeks later, my dad asked me, hey, if you had to pick between who you wanted to live with, me or your mom, Ed or Cass, right? So if I say mom or dad now, I'm, return, I'm referring to my maternal grandparents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think about it. I'm a little boy. My dad's my hero, right? So I'm like, you, I don't think this is a real question. This turned out to be the most important decision I had ever made in my life. Because about two weeks after that, we moved in with my future stepmom. Within the first month of us moving in, she started hitting me. My two older stepbrothers started making me suck their And about a month in, she beat me so bad. The only thing I remember, I just remember like the, 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 the snapshots of the trauma, right? I remember being on the couch with my head tucked into the cushions and her having me pinned down and just hitting me on the back of my head with something. Turned out to be a soup ladle. And uh, my younger stepbrother started screaming for her to stop. She like drug me into the bathroom. Stuck my head under the spigot, turned the cold water on. It wasn't working. So she wrapped my head in a towel. We drove to get the insurance card for my dad. I was just crying. I couldn't stop crying. Like I was in so much pain. Like, um, and uh, after she gets the insurance card, we're on our way a couple towns over to the hospital. And she pulls over in this dirt lot. She turns the car off. She turns around and she looks at me in the back seat. And she said, if you ever tell anyone the things that go on in our house, I will kill your dad and that was exactly what she needed to say for me to never open my mouth again ever i never opened my mouth about what was going on in the house uh we went to the hospital the nurse like four different nurses came in and they're like what happened because the story was is that i was running into freshly waxed linoleum and i slipped and hit my head on the dishwasher Mm -hmm. and this was obviously not what happened because they had to stitch three different places and the doctor comes in, he makes her leave with a bunch of fuss because she doesn't want to leave the room. But he's like, you're not his guardian and I will call the police if you don't leave. So she leaves and he looks, the doctor sits down in front of me, looks me right in the eye and he says, this is your opportunity now to tell me the truth. What happened? So all I can think about is if I say anything, she's going to kill my dad. Mm-hmm. So I'm just like, I run in the kitchen, I slip and fell. And the doctor's like, if that's your story, that's what we'll go with. Stitched up my head and let me walk out of the hospital with a woman that he knew did that. Like it was insane. So that went on for the sexual molestation went on. She started like using kitchen utensils to like stick up my butt or she would like snap me on the testicles with rubber bands. Uh, My dad was in the national guard. He would go away for weekends and I would get dressed in like all long sleeves and she would duct tape my hands and stick me in a closet in the basement um, for the weekend. Uh, she'd let me out once a day to poop, uh, but I would sit in my own piss if I drank or ate anything. I learned not to drink or eat anything because you don't have to go to the bathroom if you're not producing anything. Yeah, it was really bad. Um, when I was 12 years old, I fought back. Um, I beat the shit out of her. I don't remember it. Uh, I busted the whole side of her face up. They never pressed charges, um, but I got kicked out of my house. Um, within a couple weeks, I got introduced to heroin. And it was the answer to every prayer that I had ever made. And I thought, oh, my God, there really is one. There really is a God. And, where, uh, where is your dad when you're getting kicked out of the house? He's the one that kicked me out. He didn't know about any of the abuse, allegedly. Um, and I asked him, you know, I'm standing there crying. I'm like, you're going to choose this whore, this piece of shit over your son. 
And he was like, you're not my son. You're my grandson. Well, it's kind of reflective of how he treated your your biological mother as well. Uh, yeah, it uh, that was that was the shot to the gut right there. Where does a twelve year old go when you're kicked out of a house? I went to I went to I had a um, my friend. He's he passed away. He uh, unfortunately he was a murder suicide. He killed his girlfriend and then himself. Uh, his name was Miles Foster. Uh, his mom was my saving angel. Um, you know, I was going to school in the early 80s, and Arlene would make me wear all her her kids' hand-me-downs from the early 70s and late 60s. So, like, I would get made fun of and teased. And I went over Miles' house one day to pick him up on the way to school, probably like three or four weeks into the school year. And his mom was like, what are you wearing? And I started crying. I was like, this is all I have. And she was like, we can't have that. So she would let me come over and change into some of Miles' clothes every day. And uh, I loved her. She mm-hmm. was... She was more of a mom to me than than my stepmom was. Uh, Cass, so so at 12 years old, I told my dad, I said, here's the condition. I said, I'll leave and I'll not tell anybody. But you can't tell anybody that I don't live here. Nobody can know that you kicked me out of this house because if Cass finds out, she'll flip shit. And at this point, Cass, she never drank. She never did drugs. She never did anything. Her addiction was work. So when her and my dad divorced, she started working 12 hours a day, seven days a week. And for me to all of a sudden be thrown into her life and that, you know what I mean? Plus at this point at 12 years old, I was, a, I was a shit. Like, I mean, like at around seven, eight years old, I figured out that there was no amount of being good that was going to prevent her from beating. So if I was going to get beat anyway, I was going to earn it. Mm-hmm. So like, I was literally Dennis the menace. Like I was the kid that like all the neighborhood kids, when I would come over, like, all of a sudden, it would be time for everybody to leave, but I would have to be the first one to leave. You know what I mean? Like, it, like, yeah, nobody wanted me around. Um, but there was a few, like Miles' mom. I stayed with, I stayed with them for a while. Um, at thirteen, the summer of nineteen eighty-seven, I was living in uh, Roach Motel, selling crack in Philadelphia. I'd buy crack in Philly, go across the bridge, and sell it in Camden. Pretty much the only other people who lived in this motel were prostitutes. For the most part, they they kind of looked out for me and Miles when Miles was around. There was a couple that were creepy that, that would like try to get us to do things with like some of the old weirdos that they hung out with. One day they kicked in my motel room and I woke up in the hospital a couple days later with 14 stitches in my ass and my jaw wired shut. I'd gotten raped, beaten, left for dead. Miles found me because he had the spare key. Yeah. So like fast forward back to I go to meet my real father. My first day I met him, I get off the bus in Las Vegas. He shows up, and I know it's him because he looks like an older, more fucked up version of me. <laughs> and, that was, <laughs> and that was saying a lot back then. He comes over, and he's like, hey, sorry, I'm late. He was like, I had to work late. I'm like, that's cool, man. No worries, you know. So we go back to his motel, and it's in the part of, the, of Vegas called the Naked City. And I had like 10 grand in cash. I didn't tell him about it. It was hidden in my stuff. The first thing he does when we get back to his room, he's like, so you like cocaine, huh? I was like, well, I don't really do that anymore. And he's like, well, have you ever done meth? Or no, he said, you ever done crank? And I was like, well, I was like, no. I was like, they don't really have that where I'm from. <laughs> I'm like, they, I like the closest thing we had to like speed where I'm from is like White Cross. It's like, unless you know some bikers. I was like, and I don't know no bikers. He pulls out this bag of crank. And, uh. The first time I ever did meth, we sat down, hit me, him, and his best friend, and smoked an eight ball. I chewed my fingernails almost to the cuticle. Mm-hmm. My, I, couldn't, I couldn't touch anything for like two days. And like they went to sleep. 
for three days I was up. And then when I crashed, I woke up. They were gone. All my money was gone. They had gone through all my shit. They took my ID. Oh. I'm like, some some can't be right. We must have got robbed. So I wait for a little bit to go. And then the cleaning lady comes. It's like, check out time, man. You got to go. I'm like, oh. So I, I explained to the manager. He's like, I don't give a fuck. He's like, you got one hour. You know, I called my uncle, who was my attorney, and I had to wire me some more money and bought some clothes and got a place and stuff. But I finally ran into him in front of uh, in front of the MGM Grand. I beat the shit out of him right on the strip. I mean, I like it was so <sighs> cathartic. Like I mean, like it was. I was just beating him, and then I and I looked at him and I was like, "You would do best to never cross my path again." And I saw him about. Four months later, because he set me on a path for 11 months, I was in Vegas doing meth. I was living in a box behind an air conditioning unit, uh, living off of free saltine packets and free condiments, ketchup, mustard, and relish. I would make a little mix, and that's what I would eat every day because every penny I had went to, went to get high on meth. Six months in, I hooked up with this woman, and she was a meth cook for Las Vegas. But she also worked on the side, and she needed people to sell for her. So she was like, you can live here if you if you work for me. She's like, I just need somebody who has a driver's license who can deliver. And I was like, boom, I'm your guy. <clears throat> all the dope I could do, all I had to do was make deliveries for her. I'm sitting in her house one day, and I'm watching cops live in Las Vegas on her television. <clears throat> and I'm like, man, man, this is crazy. This is insane. And I watch on the TV as they pull up in front of my house, and I hear – and I hear – Thomas Toll, come out with your hands on top of your head. We have the house surrounded. Man, there's probably like 15 pounds of meth in this house. Three different kinds. Like, I mean, it's a for real biker cookhouse. Previously, I, I, could, I had been up for like 31 days at this point. I couldn't go to sleep. And then my friends kept telling me, oh, you just got to do more. You'll, you'll eventually crash. And I had just done a big shot and I'm watching this and I'm like, well, I guess I'm going to go to sleep now in jail. I walk to the door. I walk out with my hands on top of my head. Cross behind my head. Two cops run up, slam me on the ground. I hit the ground, look up, and there's no cops. It was a complete paranoid delusion. I went inside oh the house. God. The TV wasn't even in the room that I was sitting in. Like, it was crazy. I wrote a note on a big piece of art paper, said, Aunt Cat, I got to go. I packed a backpack with one change of clothes and a bunch of clean pair of socks and a big bag of weed, and I hit I-15, and I hitchhiked to the north part of town, and then I crawled into a cardboard dumpster and crashed for three days. And when I finally woke up, I went inside, and the two teenagers who were working in there, it was like the graveyard shift, they started laughing. They're like, bro, we didn't let them take the dumpster for two days because we wanted to let you sleep. <laughs> like, I was like, how'd you know I was sleeping? They're like, we kept poking you with sticks and you would move. I was like, all right, man, whatever. They gave me some food, and I hitchhiked to Utah. And uh was in Utah for a little bit, and then my buddy was like, hey, man, fish are playing in Denver, and we can stay at my girlfriend's house. I was like, let's go. And I ended up in Denver on Christmas Eve, 1993. I've been here ever since. Wow. All up. Yeah. Uh, so what? Uh, so, so, yeah, go, what, what question no, are you going to ask? Cause that I, was like, oh, there's my. so much there. So much. Um, and so it's kind of like your foundation how do you feel about if we moved ahead to when you start right before you found recovery and the turning that's, point? That's, that's, a, that's a great jump. I get to Colorado. I stay on the hippie drugs for about six months. I, then I go right back into heroin. Um, and 
I went full bore. I was selling uh, three quarter pounds of coke and heroin every three days in Boulder, Colorado. I got busted in 96 on 27 federal indictments and a RICO Act. Um, I beat it on a technicality because the warrant that they served on the property, residence, or occupancy owned or, occup or owned by Thomas Francis Toll Jr. was not actually owned by me. I bought a little house, and when I bought it, I put it in an ex-girlfriend's crazy mom who was in a psych ward's name. Um, so I beat <laughs> it on a technicality. Me and 26 other people in three states walked out of a federal courtroom because all of those warrants were based upon the search and seizure of my place. I ended up going to prison for three years. I got a three-year deal because they say that they found a tenth of a gram of heroin in my pocket when they busted me. So mm -hmm. I tried to get clean and sober for the first time. I stayed clean and sober in jail. I went to AA meetings. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, well, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be okay as long as I just drink. As long as I just drink, I'll be okay. I get out November 1st. Boom, I get drunk within three days. Within two weeks, I'm shooting dope. I, go, I get so bad and start losing weight so fast that I start making fake doctor's notes to my parole officer saying that I had a tumor above my diaphragm that was causing me to continuously vomit anytime I had too much stuff in my stomach or if I ate too much or if I drank too much. I was passing my UAs because I had this magic mixture that I was buying that made my pee look like it was real pee. And uh, I wake up on my 32nd birthday on January 16th, 2006, and I'm in a house full of alcohol and cocaine straws and drug paraphernalia all over. I'm on an ankle monitor on parole, and I live nine blocks from the parole office. And I'm thinking to myself, what are you doing? So I go to my parole officer. I come completely clean. He gets me into detox. In detox, I meet a bunch of super cool people from AA. Um, and for the next five years, I was on fire for the program. Hmm. But I was one of those people at the time who is constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. And uh, I didn't really understand the full meaning of the intent behind when they say, if you want what they have, do what they do. I understood that it meant the spiritual work that they were doing and the step work and all of that. But I also thought it meant that like I had to mimic their lives. Mm -hmm. So I started dating <clears throat> people that I would never date. Uh, women that I would never date. And <clears throat> I ended up falling in love with this woman's kids. <clears throat> Thought I was in love with her. We got married. She cheated on me. I lost my business. Um, at the time, I had owned a percentage in a medical marijuana dispensary. I was making like between fifteen dollars and $25,000 a month. Um, they changed the law, said convicted felons couldn't do that no more. So I had to sell out. My partners completely ripped me off and robbed me of 90% of what they were supposed to pay me. My wife cheated on me. So I was in a full-blown relapse for like a year without ever touching a drink or a drug. Mm -hmm. um, I am a firm believer that when you finally drink or do that drug, you that's the final step in the relapse. You're, you know what I mean? And my story in that respect isn't much different. People say, what, what happened? I, I stopped going to meetings mm -hmm. because I started putting personalities above principles. And I didn't like the fact that people who loved me and cared about me were calling me all my shit. And I'm like, take your own fucking inventory. I'll take my inventory. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And uh, I ended up relapsing in January of 2012, like 12 or 13 days shy of six years. Um, relapse went on and off. I ended up pawning some things that I had bought in sobriety that turned out to be stolen. Um, 
a bike and some other things. So I ended up catching a felony because they told me with my prior history, there was no way I couldn't have known that they weren't stolen. And uh, in and out of jail because I kept violating probation. Finally, about end of September, beginning of October of 2013, I started to contemplate taking my own life seriously for the first time in my own life, in my whole life. Uh, and it wasn't because I was depressed. It wasn't because I felt like in self-pity. It's because I was tired. Mm-hmm. In every imaginable sense of the word, uh, emotionally, spiritually, I understood for the first time in my life what it meant to be incomprehensibly demoralized. And, you know, I was raised Catholic. So in the back of my mind, there's always that priest. If you kill yourself, you are going to hell for sure because it's the one sin you can't apologize for. You can't repent for it. But at this point, I didn't care. And over the next few weeks, I, I remember climbing up Settlers Park. It's like a little peak we have right there in Boulder and meditating and praying like, God, is this the path? Is this the path? And like nothing felt wrong about it. And I was homeless, but I had a friend who was also my dealer um, who, when it snowed, would let me crash at his house. And uh, so I just prayed for snow. And on October 27th, 2013, uh, nine years ago yesterday, it snowed. And I went to his house and I said, hey, man, can I crash? And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple other people are here too. And that was like, fuck. (laughs) I didn't want other people there, but I was like, whatever, you know, it's cool. I'm just going to do my own thing. And I had made a playlist on my phone. Um, First song was Heroin by the Velvet Underground. And uh, I... uh, we watched the movie and then we were getting ready to watch the sequel. And I was like, Hey man, I'm, I was like, I'm kind of dirty. Can I go take a bath? And he was like, yeah, man, go ahead. There's candles, blah, blah, blah. I was like, cool. I brought some candles too. And I went upstairs. I ran a bath with some candles. It took me about 10 minutes, maybe eight, eight minutes. Fixed up my stuff and intentionally overdosed. Um, they said I was up there about 20, 25 minutes before the girl who was there had to use the bathroom. And she, there was one of those like little sardine can locks for the for the doorknob, and she went in and was using the toilet, talking to me, and I wasn't responding. They pulled she pulled back the curtain, and uh, I was blue, floating in the water, music playing. So she freaked out, I guess. Called them. Um, I woke up to lying on the floor, having these people over top of me, like crying and laughing and hugging each other, like, and uh, I realized what had happened, and I felt horrible i was like man i can't even kill myself right like what the fuck (laughs) but something had changed i knew i didn't ever want to do heroin again like and it wasn't like before when i was like man i gotta get clean so i get off parole and then i liked aa and the recovery community so i stayed clean like this was different like i remember sitting in the dining room because like in view of everybody because nobody would let me out of their sight. And uh, I was on the run from probation and I had a nine year suspended prison sentence. And uh, that morning I grabbed my stuff and I told him, I said, Hey, I'm going to turn myself in. And I went and turned myself in because I went to my probation officer and I said, Hey, I said, she's like, what? she's like, you don't have to arrest you. I said, yes. I said, but I want you to do one thing for me. She's like, what's that? I said, please, put me in detox because I swore to myself I would never be dope sick in jail again. Mm. 
I'd been out for seven years at this point, like out of prison. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, um, so she did, she let me go to detox for five days and, uh, even let me check myself out and turn myself in at the jail. Um, and when I was in the jail, Boulder County jail, um, in Boulder, Colorado has this program. It's nationwide now You might've heard of it or listeners might've heard of it. It's called JBBS. It's jail-based behavioral services. And it's very much focused on what led you to this life. Let's go back. Let's dig deep. Let's find out what the root causes and conditions were that co- that led you to this life. It was a one-shot deal. It wasn't like one of these programs where you just keep going back and they're like, oh, come on back. We believe in you. They're like, nope, we're here to heal. If you're not here to heal, then don't even come. Because if you do, you're blowing your one shot. When I was in there, I had this therapist who was young and passionate and uh, a little 29-year-old woman from California. Uh, and we would meet once every couple weeks for about 45 minutes. And, you know, I, I liked meeting with her and I kind of had some trust for her. But my walls were so thick and so high that we would have to talk for 40 minutes before I would even be comfortable revealing anything. Mm-hmm. So she asked me one of the last times we had met on this platform like that she was like how do you feel that that, now that you know you're going back to prison i was like "Ah, that's whatever you know what i mean it is what it is there's nothing i can do about it so why why worry about it she was like i'm calling bullshit i'm like what do you mean she's like she's like that's bullshit she's like you've been telling me for the last three sessions how happy and glad you were that you've been out of prison and gotten out of that mentality and finally gotten to a place where that wasn't you anymore she's like and now you're telling me you're totally okay with it She's like, you know what? She's like, if you're not going to be real, she's like, I'm just not going to meet with you. Hmm. And I was like, what do you expect from me? I was like, you you kindly bestow 45 minutes on me every couple weeks and you want me to come in here and like get on the couch and like get all like Carl Young deep with you and like do deep shadow work once and once every couple weeks. Hmm. And that's if something doesn't come up. And she was like, okay, well, what do you need to get real? I said, I need 90 minutes a week. I said, I want you to meet with me every Friday. I said, because weekends are really hard for me. I said, because there's no programs. It's just downtime. I said, it's really hard for me. I said, so I need Fridays. I said, I need 90 minutes every Friday. And she was like, I can give you 60 minutes every Friday. And I was like, bet I'll take it. And she's the one who actually got me into the program. She got it fast track because I was on like a three-month wait list. She got me, boom, within weeks. She was like, nope, we need to get him in there because he's for real. He's never been for real. Now he's for real, so we need to be for real for him. And I didn't have a bunch of opportunities to go to meetings, but fortunately my sponsor would come see me once a week and I would go to the two or three meetings we had every week. But what I decided to do this time was I decided to really get to the core root causes. Like, why did I do what I did? And, you know, it all comes back to because of, you know, the abuse, the trauma. Okay, so... That's my story, right? Is that I was this victim and a survivor. And if you had my life, you would do what I did. You know what I mean? Okay. So that's what I was running with. So then we started watching these Brene Brown videos. Mm. about Yeah. Love that woman. Like my, my whole, like, I hope I become famous enough one day that I can like sit down and just talk with her. Like, not, <laughs> well, drag, you know I mean? drag me along because I've, yeah. I've thought the same. Man, I, I love her. And uh, I'm sitting in these classrooms with these, men who have got, you know, 10, 15, 20 years on me. And they're the guys that I've been doing time with since I was 20 years old, 22 years old. They showed me, 
they taught me the convict code. The convict code is there's there's three rules. You don't victimize women, children, or elderly. Everything else is on the table. Like in prison, as long as you don't break those or tell, I mean, don't be a snitch, obviously, but that goes without saying, so we don't even count that in the rules. But if you're not a sex offender or you're not in there for like, you know, taking some grandma's life savings or uh, something like that, then you're considered a good dude. You know what I mean? A good, a good convict. And these are the guys who taught me how to be honest and have integrity. You know, I tell people the smartest, most honorable, and integrous people I've ever met were in the prison yard. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because prison is the last place in the world where the, your word has value. If you don't have your word on a prison yard, then you're, you're, you, you might as well check into solitary or PC or something because you're, you're of no value to anybody. You're no good. So these are the guys that I looked up to and respected and they're sitting here crying about how their parents beat them or their babysitters molested them or this or that. And I'm like, hold on in my head. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm allowed to cry. Like I can cry because since I was 12 years old, actually, since I was like nine years old, I told myself, if you ever cry again, you'll never stop. And that's weakness that you can never show weakness. So here I am sitting and crying, watching Brene Brown videos. And then one day, one of the counselors brings in this VHS tape and she pops it in. And it's just like total terrible quality. It's like a black room with a spotlight on this chair. This dude looks like a 70s porn star with his, like his tweed jacket with the elbows. You know what I mean? And like his hair is all messed up and he's like needs a shave. And he like starts and he's like sitting in his chair all slouched. And he's talking about what I would come to learn later in recovery. It's called personal narrative theory. He started saying that you will never evolve or grow from where you're at as long as you don't, if you don't change the way you tell your story to yourself. Mm-hmm. Because how we tell our stories to ourselves is how we present ourselves to the world, right? So I presented myself to the world as this badass, like punk rock slash deadhead junkie. Like my, my nickname was Shades Oakley Ray-Ban, junkie extraordinaire. Like that's how I identified and I was okay with it because I was like for the longest time because it worked. What I realized was that I didn't want to be that person anymore. So I really started, he said, not only do we have to look at, he said, we have to take ourselves and like think of like, look at our lives like we're watching it from a movie and we're the critic. We have to dissect every part of that story. So I started looking at my stepmom, okay? What did I ever do as a six-year-old boy to deserve any of that? First of all, nothing. Mm-hmm. Nothing. I don't give a fuck if you're mm-hmm. the kid from the Omen. Right. You don't deserve <laughs> that kind of treatment at, at that age. So now I had to start asking questions, right? I had this journal and I had these color-coded questions, you know, um, and so I could go back and reference them. So I started, I, I was a journal fiend. I was journaling probably six hours a day meditating six hours a day and in my meditations i would envision myself sitting around a campfire with my demons with my shadows with my trauma and i would journal about the things that i would think about when i meditated so i started asking these questions like okay so arlene that's my stepmom what would drive you to beat a six-year-old child like that and threaten to kill his dad if he says anything so what do i know about arlene's life well i know that my dad rescued her from an abusive marriage. Her husband and the father of her children was a German immigrant teamster 
who was a ridiculously abusive alcoholic. Um, he would drink in the morning, go to work, drink all night till his local bar closed, come home, drink more, beat her, beat the kids. Everybody except for his daughter. He never beat his daughter um, or his youngest, but he would beat his two older stepsons and her. They're the ones who abused me. So is what they did okay? No, it's absolutely not. But what it is, it's perpetuating a cycle of trauma, a cycle of generational stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> I had to really come to a point in myself, can I forgive the person without forgiving the act? And fortunately, um, I've been able to do that. Um, I've been able to look back on all of my abusers, my stepbrothers, my stepmom, my dad for not rescuing, for not saving. You know, I had to look at his life. What was his story? When he was 15 years old in 1944, he joined the military army with his older brother's birth certificate. They found out how old he was and they sent him home. But then when he was old enough to enlist, he enlisted and immediately went or he joined the Marine Corps and he immediately went to Korea. He was there for the pre-Korean War. During the Korean War, was a POW for a while and was there afterwards. And then did a bunch of stuff in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia when the French were there. And then when we went to Vietnam, he did three and a half tours in Vietnam. They finally made him come home because my aunt, who I, I call all my aunts and uncles, my sisters and my brothers because that's how I was raised. My sister Rita fell off a roof apparently like a year before I was born and smashed her arm up. And they were like, Ed, go home. Your kid almost died. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's how much of a soldier he was. Special Forces, Airborne Ranger, 82nd Airborne, Green Beret. You know what I mean? Like he, after Korea, he mustered out of the Marines and re-enlisted in the Army. Like, I mean, he was a soldier. So, like, I had to take that into, into account. I'm like, okay, so he probably didn't know how to love. It's, he, his, his level of PTSD, I can't even imagine it. When you're taught to mm -hmm. feel nothing when you kill except for the recoil of your gun, that does something to a person. Mm -hmm. you, you know what I mean? And, uh. So forgiveness was freeing. Mm -hmm. You know, I talk about that campfire. I stayed around that campfire until I was the one who was in control. I was the one who held the conch. The spotlight was on me. You know, um, I understand through my recovery and discovery this time that there are several individuals who live inside of me and we all have our role and we've all had our place. Um, but it's all been to protect that little boy who got taken away from his mom. So let me ask you a question. You had nine years of recovery today, which is really pretty cool. Absolutely. You had six years of recovery before, which I don't discount because you returned to use. How would you describe yourself today? Who are you? Who is Rex Shades Eagle? I consider myself a man who can look in the mirror and love what he sees. Mm. I can look myself in the eye now and know that I haven't ever, I haven't always made the best decisions, but I've never made the wrong ones. Mm -hmm. I've, every decision I ever made in my life, right, wrong, or indifferent, was the best decision to make at the time. And it got me to where I am today. Mm -hmm. I am a man who is so grateful for the trials that my God has given me that the steel of my soul is tempered, mm -hmm. beyond tempered. It's tested and tempered and tried, true. And Today, I'm a, I just want to be of service. I, 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 I try to be a servant. I have a nonprofit um, where I just raise money for other people. And it's not one of those nonprofits where I keep all the money and give them the bare minimum. 
Um, if it's not something that I'm directly working on, then they get all the money. Mm-hmm. If it's something that I need to be reimbursed for something, like uh, this is a good segue next June um, uh, or this past June. Well, uh, every June is Men's Mental Health Awareness Month. Well, back in April, I got on TikTok finally. Uh, my, I, I published a book in January um, telling my story. Um, it's called no, the, yeah, I was going to ask what it's called. It's called No Love, K-N-O-W. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, no Love, a memoir. Um, and then uh, right after we published it, uh, some friends of mine who also do podcasts encouraged me to st- do my own podcast. So we have that. It's uh, No Love, the memoir continues. Um, is the podcast so to promote it i started getting more active on social media and uh i got on tiktok and discovered a huge recovery community um started posting daily blew up quick um kind of flattened out around fifteen thousand followers um but in june i started seeing a lot of tiktoks about men's mental health and suicide statistics so then i contacted my local office of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And I was like, what can I do? And they're like, well, we got this campaign going. We're trying to get Congress to Senate to pass the 988 bill. Um, so I started writing Congress's congressmen and senators in my state. The bill got passed, not because of me, just, <laughs> but. Uh, you never know. Might yeah, have been that uh, one more letter that was needed. You, know, you, you never know. But uh, so now, uh, just for anybody listening, if you know anybody or thinking about hurting yourself, uh, now instead of dialing a big 1-800 number all you have to do is dial 988 mm-hmm. um, or you can text talk the word talk to 741-741 and somebody will respond immediately and somebody will always pick up um but i felt like i could do more right i was like man i was a junkie for 27 years i robbed i stole you know i can't i can't imagine how many lives i ruined with the drugs that i dealt um what can i do so i started thinking about it and i love to ride my bike and I've always wanted to ride my bike um, across the United States. Worked behind the scenes with the guy, uh, Michael, at AFSP. And he was talking to some people, find out what we needed to do. But now um, I have officially partnered with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Um, and on June 25th of next year, I will be departing Seattle on my bicycle. And I'll be riding to San Francisco, from San Francisco to Denver, from Denver to Washington, D.C., and from Washington, D.C. to Miami, Florida. Um, I should arrive sometime around September 20th, 25th. So I'm leaving on Men's Mental Health Awareness Month, and I'm arrived and I'm ending on suicide prevention. How are we going to get you up to New England? Like come up through us and visit us, like up to Boston or something? You know, I, uh, <laughs> I my original uh, my original destination was Boston. Yeah. Um, but just due to logistics and traffic and time. Um, that part of the country is so hard to make any kind of time in. Yeah. Uh, just based upon all the stops and goes. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, so, plus my daughter's in Florida. Ah, there you go. And uh, we really want to, you know, go spend some time with her. Uh, and I'm sure we'll go before then. But so, how do uh, we? How can we support you in that journey? Uh, you can go to our website, either nolovefoundation.org. Uh, K-N-O-W, NoLoveFoundation.org, or Ride for Life USA, Ride, the the number four, LifeUSA.org. Uh, that's the name of the event. Um, 80% of the proceeds, um, we have a GoFundMe set up uh, through the website, or you can find it on my TikTok. Um, 80% of money raised goes to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to raise awareness and for outreach. 
20% is going back to help me and my family. Uh, just training for this is a, it's a full-time job. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm right now I'm at about four hours a day riding. I need to get up to about 10, nine to 10. Um, the goal is 90 miles a day. So from where I live, that's like riding to Cheyenne, Wyoming and back. Wow. Um, and I'm also, you know, at a mile high. Uh, <laughs> so, so you'll, you'll be good for the lowlands anyway, uh, by training there. Yes. Yep. Um, but yeah, uh, the website's the best place, nolovefoundation.org. Um, you know, even if you just share that, that's helping, you know, just helping getting the word out. Uh, it's funny. Uh, I'm on a campaign right now on an email com- campaign trying to get Owen Wilson or Vanilla Ice to retweet our pinned tweet because both of them um, are suicide attempt survivors with obvious. So it's something relatable. You know what I mean? And yeah. I'm like, man, if you could just retweet it one time, it's all it would need. Mm-hmm. Millions of people would see it. So well, somebody, well, maybe somebody's we'll, listening. Yeah. Maybe somebody <laughs> is listening. My whole life has just led up to, to this point. Mm-hmm. To me finally being happy and content and feeling the warmth of God on me every day. Mm-hmm. Well, Rex, I think that's a perfect way to end. And it's no no uh, coincidence that you call your book and your website No Love. So thank you for your courage and sharing your story. Um, and since we're Brene Brown friends, vulnerabilities, right, is yes. something that we probably both champion. Yes, absolutely. And uh, congratulations on nine years. Uh if no one's told you this recently, and just in our short conversation, I can say from my soul to your soul that I believe in you, because I, I really believe that you're on the right track, that you're going to help many. Um, I've recently released a book, too, called Continue, and so that is, it's right-click on the Appalachian Trail about my through-hike on the Appalachian Trail I did in 2015. So right. my message to you is, continue and, yeah and i think because of today we know the exact date that you're going to finish your journey but we'll we'll keep it to ourselves and see if that happens okay all right um and i would just like to say in closing um anybody who's listening um especially the men out there and the women mm-hmm. because women women attempt suicide one and a half times more than men men succeed three almost four times more than women you're not alone i care somebody cares um, I love you. You have value. The greatest gift I ever received from God was understanding that I do belong here, mm-hmm. that I that I am supposed to be here. Um, all right. Thank you very much. Namaste. God bless. Thank Take you. Take care, Rex. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.